0: Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Good evening. In this episode, I'll be reading chapters 7 to 11 of The Story of Greece by Mary McGregor. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep chapter seven dane and her little son the stories i have told you are about the gods of ancient greece The story I am going to tell you now is about a Greek hero. When you think of a hero, you think of a man who does brave, unselfish deeds. But to the Hellenists or Greeks, a hero was one who was half God, half man, whose one parent was a god, while the other was a mortal. So the god Zeus was the father of Perseus, the hero of whom I am going to tell, while his mother was a beautiful princess named Danae. From morning to night, from night till morning, Acrisius, the father of Danae, was never happy. Yet he was a king. A king and unhappy? Yes, the king was unhappy because he was afraid that someday, as the oracle had foretold, he would be slain by his grandson. The ancient Greeks often sent To sacred groves or temples to ask their gods about the future, and the answer, which was given by a priestess, was called an oracle. Now, Acrisius, king of Argos, had no grandson, so it was strange that the oracle should make him afraid. He hoped that he never would have a grandson. His one child, beautiful, gentle Dane, he had loved well until he had heard the oracle. Now he determined to send her away from the palace, to hide her, where no prince would ever find her, and try to win her for his bride. The wind god sent a gust from the south. So the king shut the princess into a tower, which was encased in brass and surrounded it with guards, so that no one, at least of all a prince, could by any chance catch a glimpse of his beautiful daughter. Very sad was Dane, Very lonely, too, when she was left in the brazen tower, and Zeus, looking down from Olympus, pitied her, and before long sent a little son to cheer her loneliness. One day the guard saw the babe on his mother's knee. Here was the grandson about whom the king had hoped that he would never Born. In great alarm, they hastened to the palace to tell the king the strange tidings. Acrisius was so frightened when he heard their story that he flew into a passion and vowed that Danae and Perseus, as her little son was named, should perish so he ordered the guards to carry the mother and her babe to the seashore and to send them adrift on the waters in an empty boat. For two days and two nights the boat was tossed hither and thither by the winds and the waves, while Dane, in a sore dismay but was a brave heart, clasped her golden-haired boy tight in her arms. The child slept sound in the frail bark, while his mother cried to the gods to bring her and her treasure into a safe haven. On the third day, the answer to her prayers came, for before her Dane saw an island, with a shore of yellow sand. And on the shore stood a fisherman with his net looking out to sea. He soon caught sight of the boat and as it drew near he cast his net over it and gently pulled it to shore. It seemed to Dane almost too good to be true to stand once again on dry land. She thought it was but a dream from which she would wake to find herself once more tossing on the great wide sea. But there stood Dictys, the fisherman, looking at her in wonder. Then Danae knew that she was indeed awake, she hastened to thank him for his help, and to ask him where she could find shelter for herself and her child. Then the fisherman, who was the brother of Polydectus, king of the island on which Danae had landed, said that if she would go with him to his home, he would treat her as a daughter. And Danae went gladly to live with Dictus. So Perseus grew up in the island of Seriphus, playing on the sands when he was small, and when he had grown tall and strong, going voyages to other islands with Dictus, or fishing with him nearer home. Zeus loved the lad. And watched over him. Fifteen years passed, and then the wife of Polydectus died, and the king wished to marry Dane, for he loved her and knew that she was a princess. But Dane did not wish to wed Polydectus, and she refused to become his queen, for indeed she loved no one save her son, Perseus. Then the king was angry, and vowed that if Danae would not come to the palace as his queen, he would compel her to come as his slave. And it was even so, as a slave, that Perseus found her when he returned from a voyage with Dictus. The anger of the lad was fierce. How dare anyone treat his beautiful mother so cruelly? He would have slain the king had not Dictus restrained him. Subduing his anger as well as he could, Perseus went boldly to the palace, and taking no heed of Polydectus. He brought his mother away, and left her in the temple of Athene. There she would be safe, for no one, not even the king, would enter the sanctuary of the goddess. Perseus must leave this island, said Polydectus when he was told of the lad's bold deed. He thought that if her son were banished, Danae would perchance be willing to become his queen. For two days and two nights the boat was tossed hither and thither, but Polydectus was too crafty to issue a royal command, bidding Perseus leave Sephiris. That he knew would make Danae hate him more than ever, so he thought of a better way to get rid of the lad. He arranged to give a great feast in the palace, and proclaimed that each guest should bring a gift to present to the king. Among other youths, Perseus, too, was invited, but he was poor and had no gift to bring, and this was what the unkind king wished. So when Perseus entered the palace empty-handed, Polydectus was quick to draw attention to the lad, laughing at him and taunting him that he did not as the other guests, and brought with him a gift, The courtiers followed the example of their king, and Perseus found himself attacked on every side. The lad soon lost his temper, and looking with defiance at Polydectus, he cried, ''I will bring you the head of Medusa as a gift, O king, when next I enter the palace.'' Brave words are these, Perseus, answered the king. See that you turn them into deeds, or we shall think you but boast as does a coward. Then as Perseus turned and left the banqueting hall, the king laughed well pleased, for he had goaded the lad until he had fallen into the trap prepared for him. If Perseus went in search of the head of Medusa, he was not likely to be seen again in Seriphus, thought the king, and Perseus, as he walked away towards the sea, was saying to himself, "'Yes, I shall go in search of Medusa, nor shall I return,' unless I bring her head with me, a gift for the king. Chapter 8 The Quest of Perseus Medusa and her two sisters were named the Gorgons. The sisters had always been plain and even terrible to see but Medusa had once been fair to look upon. When she was young and beautiful, her home was in a northern land where the sun never shone. So she begged Athene to send her to the south where sunshine made the long days glad. But the goddess refused her request, In her anger, Medusa cried, It is because I am so beautiful that you will not let me go, for if Medusa were to be seen, who then would wish to look at Athene? Such proud and foolish words might not be suffered by the gods, and the maiden was sharply punished for her rash speech. Her beautiful curly hair was changed into serpents, living serpents that hissed and coiled around her head. Nor was this all, but whoever so much as glanced at her face was at once turned into stone. Terrible indeed was Medusa, the Gorgon, Whose head Perseus had vowed to bring as a gift to Polydectus. She had great wings like eagles and sharp claws instead of hands. Now, as Perseus wandered down to the shore after he had defied the king, his heart began to sink. How was he even to begin his task? He did not know where Medusa lived, nor did anyone on the island. In his perplexity, he did as his mother had taught him to do. He prayed to Athene, and lo, even as he prayed, the goddess was there by his side. With her was Hermes, the fleet-footed wearing his winged sandals. The gods will aid you, Perseus, said Athene, if you will do as they bid you. But think not to find their service easy, for they who serve the gods must endure hardship and live laborious lives. Will this content you? Perseus had no fears now that he knew the gods would help him, and with a brave and steadfast heart he answered, I am content. Then Pluto sent to the lad his magic helmet, which made whoever wore it invisible. Hermes gave him the winged sandals he wore, so that he might be able to fly over land and sea, while Athene entrusted to him her shield, the dread of Aegis, burnished bright as the sun. The shield was made from the hide of a goat, but the Hellenes thought of it as the great storm cloud in which Zeus hid himself when he was angry for it was the shield of her father Zeus that Athene used. Upon Medusa herself, Perseus would not be able to cast a glance, lest he be turned to stone. But looking at the shield, he would see her image as in a mirror. The lad was now armed for his quest, but not yet. Did he know whither it would lead? But Athene could direct him. She said that the abode of the Gargons was known to none save three sisters called the Greae. These sisters had been born with grey hair and had only one eye and one tooth between them, which they used in turn. Their home was in the north, in a land of perpetual darkness, and it was there that Perseus must go to learn the dwelling place of the Gorgons. So at length the lad was ready to set out on his great adventure. On and on, sped by his winged sandals, he flew past many a fair town, until he left Greece far behind, on and on until he reached the dark and dreary land where the Greye dwelt. He could see them now, the three Grey Sisters, as they sat in the gloom just outside their cave. As Perseus drew near, unseen by them because of his magic helmet, The sisters were passing their one eye from hand to hand, so that at that moment all three were blind. Perseus saw his chance, and stretching out his hand seized the eye. They, each thinking that the other had it, began to quarrel. But Perseus cried, "'I hold the eye in my hand.' Tell me where I may find Medusa, and you shall have it back. The sisters were startled by a voice when they had neither seen nor heard anyone approach. They were more startled by what the voice said. Very unwilling were they to tell their secret, yet what? could they do if the stranger refused to give back their one eye? Already he was growing impatient and threatening to throw it into the sea, so lest he should really fling it away, they were forced to tell him where he would find the gorgon. Then Perseus, placing the eye in one of the eager outstretched hands sped swiftly on his journey as he reached the land of which the grey had told him he heard the restless beating of the gorgon's wings and he knew that his quest was well nigh over onward still he flew and then raising his burnished shield he looked into it and lo he saw the images of the gorgons they lay all three fast asleep on the shore unsheathing his sword perseus held it high and then keeping his gaze fixed upon the shield he flew down and swiftly cut off medusa's head and thrust it into a magic bag which he carried slung over his shoulder. Now as Perseus seized the terrible head, the serpents coiled around the gorgon's brow, rousing themselves, and began to hiss so fiercely that the two sisters awoke and knew that evil had befallen Medusa. They could not see Perseus For he wore his magic helmet, but they heard him, and in an instant they were following fast, eager to avenge the death of their sister. For a moment the brave heart of the hero failed. Was he doomed to perish now that his task was accomplished? He cried aloud to Athene. For he heard the Gorgons following ever closer on his path. Then, more swiftly sped the winged sandals, and soon Perseus breathed freely once again, for he had left the Dread Sisters far behind. Chapter 9 Andromeda and the Sea Monster As Perseus journeyed over land and sea on his great quest, he often thought of the dear mother he had left in Seriphus. Now that his task was done, he longed to fly over the blue waters of the Mediterranean to see her, to know that she was safe from the cruel King Polydectus, but the gods had work for Perseus to do before he might return to his island home. Again and again the lad struggled against wind and rain, trying ever to fly in the direction of Seraphus, but again and again he was beaten back. Faint and weary he grew, Tired, too, of striving, so that he thought he would die in the desert through which he was passing. Then, all at once, it flashed across his mind that Hermes had told him that as long as he wore the winged sandals, he could not lose his way. New courage stole into his heart as he remembered the words of the god, and soon he found that he was being carried with the wind towards some high mountains. Among them he caught sight of a titan or giant named Atlas, who had once tried to dethrone Zeus and who for his daring had been doomed to stand, supporting on his shoulders the vast pillar of heaven and earth a weight of cumbrous grasp. The face of Atlas was pale with the mighty burden he bore, and which he longed to lay down. As he caught sight of Perseus, he thought that perhaps the stranger would be able to help him, for he knew what Perseus carried in his magic bag. So as he drew near... Atlas cried to him, Hasten, Perseus, and let me look upon the gorgon's face that I may no longer feel this great weight upon my shoulders. Then, in pity, Perseus drew from the magic bag the head of Medusa and held it up before the eyes of Atlas. In a moment, the giant was changed into stone, or rather into a great rugged mountain, which ever since that day has been known as the Atlas Mountain. The winged sandals then bore Perseus on until he reached a dark and desolate land, so desolate it was that it seemed to him that the gods had forsaken it, or that it had been blighted by the sins of mortals. In this island lived Queen Cassopia with her daughter Andromeda. Cassopia was beautiful, but instead of thanking the gods for their gift of beauty, she used to boast of it, saying that she was fairer than the nymphs of the sea. So angry were the nymphs when they heard this, that they sent a terrible monster to the island, which lay it waste and made it dark and desolate as Perseus had seen. The island folk sent to one of their temples to ask what they could do to free their island from the presence of the sea serpent, This monster has been sent to punish Kasopia for her vain boast, was the answer. Bid her sacrifice her daughter Andromeda to the sea serpent. Then will the nymphs remove the curse from your homes. Andromeda was fair and good, and the people loved her well so that they were greatly grieved at the oracle. Yet if they did not give up their princess, their homes would be ruined, their children would perish before their eyes. So while the queen shut herself up in her palace to weep, the people took the beautiful maiden down to the shore and chained her fast to a great rock. Then, slowly, sorrowfully, they went away, leaving her a prey to the terrible monster. As Perseus drew nearer to the sea, he saw the maiden. The next moment, he was gazing in horror at the sea serpent, as with open, hungry jaws, it approached its victim. Quick as lightning... Perseus drew his sword and swooped down towards the monster, at the same moment holding before him the head of Medusa. As the eyes of the serpent fell upon that awful sight, it slipped backwards and before Perseus could use his sword, it was changed into a rock, a great black rock and if you go to the shore of Levant, you may see it still, surrounded by the blue water of the Mediterranean. Chapter 10 Acrisius is killed by Perseus As soon as Perseus saw that the monster was harmless, he took off his magic helmet and hastening to Andromeda, he broke the chain that held her to the rock. Then, bidding her fear no more, he led her back to the palace where the queen sat weeping for her lost daughter. When the door of her room was opened, Cassopia never stirred. Andromeda's arms were around her, Andromeda's kisses were on her cheek before she could believe that her daughter was in very truth alive. Then, indeed, the mother's joy was boundless. So fair, so good was the maiden that Perseus loved her and thanked the gods who had led him to that desolate land. Before many weeks had passed, the princess was wedded to the stranger who had saved her from the terrible sea monster. Twelve months later, they left Cassopia and sailed away to Seraphus, for Perseus longed to see his mother and to bring her to his beautiful bride. Seven long years had passed since Perseus set out on his quest, and Danae's heart was glad when she saw her son once more. As soon as their greetings were over, Perseus left Andromeda with his mother and went to the palace, carrying with him the head of Medusa in the magic bag. The king was feasting with his nobles when Perseus entered the banqueting hall. Long, long ago, he had ceased to think of Perseus, for he believed that he had perished on his wild adventure. Now he saw him, grown to be a man, entering the hall, he grew pale with sudden fear. Paying no heed to any, Perseus strode through the throng of merry courtiers until he stood before the throne on which sat Polydectus. Behold the gift I promised you seven years ago, O king, cried Perseus, and as he spoke he drew forth the head of Medusa and held it up for the king to see. Polydectus and his startled nobles stared in horror at the awful face of the Gorgon, and as they gazed, the king and all his followers were changed into figures of stone. Then Perseus turned and left the palace, and telling the island folk that Polydectus was dead, he bade them now place Dictus, the fisherman, upon the throne he then hastened to the temple of Athene, and with a glad heart gave back to the goddess the gifts which had served him so well the helmet the sandals the shield as his own offering to Athene, he gave the head of the gorgon she well pleased accepted it and had it placed in the center of her shield. So from that day, the Aegis became more terrible than before, for the Gorgon's head still turned to stone whoever it looked upon. Danae had often talked to Perseus when he was a boy of Acrisius, her father, and of Argos, the city from which he had been banished when he was a babe, Perseus now resolved to sail to Argos with Danae and Andromeda. During these years, Zacchaeus had been driven from his throne by an ambitious prince. He was in a miserable dungeon, thinking, it may be, of his unkindness to his daughter Danae. When she once again reached Argos, Perseus soon drove away the usurper, and for his mother's dear sake he took Acrisius out of his dungeon and gave him back his kingdom, for Danae had wept and begged Perseus to rescue his grandfather from prison. It seemed as though the oracle that long ago had made Acrisius act so cruelly would now never be fulfilled. But sooner or later, the words of the gods come true. One day, Perseus was present at the games that were held each year at Argos. As he flung a quoit into the air, A sudden gust of wind hurled it aside, so that it fell upon the foot of Acrisius, who was sitting near. The king was an old man now, and the blow was more than he could bear. Before long he died from the wound, and thus the oracle of the gods was fulfilled. Perseus was kind as he was brave and it grieved him that he caused the death of his grandfather, although it had been no fault of his own. Argos no longer seemed a happy place to the young king, so he left it, and going to a city called Mycenae, he made it his capital. Here, after a long and prosperous reign, Perseus died, the gods whom he had served loyally placed him in the skies among the stars, and there he still shines, together with Andromeda and Cassiopeia. Chapter 11 Achilles and Briseis, the Fair-Cheeked the story of Perseus belongs to the heroic age of Greek history, to the time when heroes were half mortal, half divine. Many other wonderful tales belong to the heroic age, but among them all, none are so famous as those that are told in the Iliad and the Odyssey. The Liads tells of the war that raged around the walls of the city of Troy, the odyssey of the adventures of the goodly Odysseus. In the northwest corner of Asia, looking towards Greece, the ruins of an ancient city have been discovered. It was on this spot that Troy or Liam was believed to have stood. Strange legends gathered round the warriors of the Trojan War, so strange that some people say that there never was such heroes as those whom the Liads tell. However, that may be, we know that in long after years, When the Greeks fought with the people of Asia, they remembered these old stories and believed that they were carrying on the wars which their fathers began. The Liad and the Odyssey were written by a poet named Homer, so many wise folk tell, while others, it may be just as wise, say that these poems were not written by one man, but were gathered from the legends of the people, now by one poet, now by another, until they grew into the collection of stories which we know as the Lead and the Odyssey. At first these old stories were not written in a book, They were sung or told in verse by the poets to the people of Hellas. And because what is simple and serious lives longer than what is merely clever, these grave old stories of two thousand years ago are still alive, and people are still eager to read them. Someday you will read the Liad, and the Odyssey. In this story, I can only tell you about a few of the mighty warriors who fought at Troy, about a few of their strange adventures. If you took a map of Greece, you will easily find, in the south, the country called Peloponnesus. In Peloponnesus, you will see Sparta, the capital city, over which Menelaus was king when the story of Liad begins. Menelius was married to a beautiful queen named Helen. She was the fairest woman in the wide world. One day there came to the court of the king a prince named Paris. He was the second son of Priam, King of Troy. Menelaus welcomed his royal guests and treated him with kindness, but Paris repaid the hospitality of the king most cruelly. For when affairs of state called Menelaus away from Sparta for a short time, Paris did not wait until he returned. He hastened back to Troy taking with him the beautiful queen of Sparta, who was ever after known as Helen of Troy. When Menelaus came home to find that Helen had gone away to Troy, he swore a great oath that he would besiege the city, punish Paris, and bring back his beautiful queen to Sparta and this was the beginning of the Trojan War. Menelaus had not a large enough army to go alone against his enemy, so he sent to his brother Agamemnon, who was the chief of all the mighty warriors of Hellas, and to many other lords, to beg them to help him to besiege Troy, and, if it might be, To slay Paris. The chiefs were eager to help Menelaus to avenge his wrongs, and soon a great army was ready to sail across the Hellespont to Asia to march on Troy. But before the army embarked, the warriors sent, as was their custom, to an oracle to ask if their expedition would be successful. Without the help of goodly Achilles, Troy will never be taken, was the answer. Achilles was the son of Thetis, the silver-footed goddess, whose home was in the depths of the sea. Well did she love her son, strong Achilles, when he was a babe, She wished to guard him from the dangers that would surely threaten him when he grew to be a man. So she took him in her arms and carried him to the banks of the River Styx. Whoever bathed in these magic waters became invulnerable, that is, he became proof against every weapon. Silver-footed Thetis... Holding her precious babe firmly by one heel, plunged him into the tide, so that his little body became at once invulnerable, save only the heel by which his mother grasped him. It was untouched by the magic water. Achilles set sail with the other chiefs for Troy so it seemed as though the city would be taken by his help, as the oracle foretold. With him, Achilles took his well-loved friend, Patroclus. For nine long years was the city of Troy besieged, and all for the sake of Helen, the beautiful queen of Sparta. Often as the three years passed, she would stand upon the walls of Troy to look at the brave warriors of Hellas, to wonder when they would take the city. But when nine years had passed, no breach had yet been made in the walls. When the Hellenus needed food or clothing, they attacked and plundered the neighbouring cities, which were not so well defended as Troy. The plunder of one of these cities, named Creasus, was the cause of the fatal quarry between Agamemnon and Achilles. In Creasus there was a temple sacred to Apollo, guarded by a priest named Creasus. His daughter, Creasus, and another beautiful maiden named Briasus, the fair cheat, were taken prisoner. When the town was sacked by the Henonus. Agamemnon claimed the daughter of the priest as his share of the spoil, while Briseis he awarded to Achilles. Often she would stand upon the walls of Troy. When Criasis the priest found that his daughter had been carried away by the Greeks, he hastened to the tent of Agamemnon taking with him a ransom great beyond telling. In his hands he bore a golden staff, on which he placed the holy garland, that the Greeks, seeing it, might treat him with reverence. Now may the gods that dwell in the mansions of Olympus grant you to lay waste the city of Priam, and to fare happily homeward. "'said the priest to the assembled chiefs. "'Only set ye me, my dear child, free, "'and accept the ransom in reverence to Apollo.' "'All save Agamemnon wished to accept the ransom "'and set Creesus free, "'but he was wrought with the priest "'and roughly bade him be gone.' Let me not find thee, old man, he cried, amid the ships, whether tarrying now or returning again hereafter, lest the sacred staff of the God avail thee naught, and thy daughter will I not set free. But depart, provoke me not, that thou mayest rather go in peace, then Croesus was angry with Agamemnon, while for his daughter's sake he wept. Down by the shore of the loud-sounding sea he walked, praying to Apollo, Hear me, God of the silver bow, if ever I build a temple gracious in thine eyes, or if ever I burnt to thee fat flesh, Of bulls or goat Fulfill thou this my desire Let the Greeks pay by thine arrows for my tears Apollo heard the cry of the priest And swift was his answer For he hastened to the tents of the Greeks Bearing upon his shoulders his silver bow And he sped arrows of death into the camp Dogs, mules, men, all fell before the arrows of the angry god. The bodies of the dead were burned on great piles of wood, and the smoke rose black towards the sky. For nine days the clanging of the silver bow was heard. Then Achilles called the host of the Greeks together, And before them all he spoke thus to Agamemnon. Let us go home, son of Atreus, he said, rather than perish, as we surely shall do if we remain here. Else let us ask a priest why Apollo treats us thus harshly. But it was easy to tell why Apollo was angry, and Calchas, a seer, answered Achilles in plain-spoken words. The wrath of the god is upon us, he said, for the sake of the priest whom Agamemnon spurned, refusing to accept the ransom of his daughter. Let Croesus be sent back to her father, and for sacrifice also a hundred beasts, that the anger of the god may be pacified. Deep was the wrath of Agamemnon as he listened to the words of Calchas. Thou seer of evil, he cried, his eyes aflame with anger. Never yet hast thou told me the thing that is pleasant, yet that the host of our army perish not, I will send the maiden back, but in her place I will take Briseis, the fair cheeked, whom Achilles has in his tent. When Achilles heard these words, he drew in his sword to slay Agamemnon, but before he could strike a blow, he felt the locks of his golden hair caught in a strong grasp, and in a moment, His rage was checked, for he knew the touch was that of the goddess Athene. None saw her save Achilles. None heard as she said to him, I came from heaven to stay thy anger. Go now, cease from strife, and let not thine hand draw the sword. Then Achilles sheathed his sword saying, Goddess, needs must a man observe thy saying, even though he be very wrought at heart, for so is the better way. Yet although Achilles struck no blow, bitter were the words he spoke to the king, for a coward did he deem him, and full of greed. If thou takest from me, Briseis, he cried, Verily, my staff, that shall not blossom again, seeing it has been cleft from a tree, never will I again draw sword for thee. Surely I and my warriors will go home, for no quarrel have we with the Trojans. And when Hector slaughters thy hosts, in vain shalt thou call for Achilles.' Well did Agamemnon know that he ought to soothe the anger of Achilles, and prevail him on to stay, for his presence alone could make the Trojans fear. Yet in his pride the king answered, Thou mayest go, and thy warriors with thee. Chieftains have I who will serve me as well as thou and who will pay me more respect than ever thou hast done. As for the maiden Brecius, her I will have, that the Greeks may know that I am indeed the true sovereign of this host. The assembly then broke up, and Cresius was sent home under the charge of Odysseus, one of the bravest of the Greek warriors. When the priest received his daughter again, he at once entreated Apollo to stay his fatal darts, that the Greeks might no longer perish in their camp. And Apollo heard and laid aside his silver bow and his arrows of death. Then Agamemnon called heralds and bade them go to the tent of Achilles and bring to him Briseis of the fair cheeks. Should Achilles refuse to give her up, said the angry king, let him know that I myself will come to fetch the maiden. But when the heralds told Achilles the words of the king, he bade Patroclus bring the damsel from her tent and give her to the messengers of Agamemnon, and the maiden, who would fain have stayed with Achilles, was taken to the king.